Hey, there's a big, big problem going on right now for businesses and for individuals, and we're talking about the cost of drugs. Now, I'm not talking about the Breaking Bad kind of drugs. I'm talking about legal pharmaceutical. We're talking about half a trillion dollar uh, in cost. Probably the biggest cost that businesses and people are seeing is in pharmaceutical costs. And why? Why is it so much more expensive here in the U.S. than across the border, say, in Mexico? Uh, we want to get to the bottom of it. So I'm talking to the CEO of Vivio Health, Premo John, and I've asked him to come on. He's got a way that he's doing this for self-insured employers and some, some of the businesses out there. But I wanted him to come on, talk to us about what is the problem, why, and what are we doing about it. Welcome right here on All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, Premo John. Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Hey, first question I'm going to have to you know, ask right off the bat, how come we don't read about this in the news and we don't see anything about what we consider to be these out-of-control drug costs. You know, Jeffrey, it's a great question. I mean, I think, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's one of those things that we see a lot of press around, you know, this whole issue of drug costs. And uh, primarily it's because uh, it's the, it turns out it's the fastest growing area of healthcare spend in the country. So as much as we talk about healthcare being a problem, this is the biggest problem in all of the healthcare problem today. So in terms of the escalating cost of drugs? Yeah, I think there's definitely the, the, the number one issue is the escalating cost. And I think that why it's sort of perturbing to us as Americans also is that we see these same drugs being sold in other countries for literally 100 times less, 1,000 times less for exactly the same drugs. And so it, it, then at that point, we, we look at it and are asking the question, why are we bearing the brunt of this? And everyone mm-hmm. else uh, gets a, gets to pay a lower price for exactly the same thing that was made on the same factory lines. Well, especially since a lot of them are manufactured or made here in the U.S., right? You know, interesting point. It turns out that the majority of these drugs, even these specialty medications, are often manufactured offshore. Really? Because even the brand manufacturers in the United States, the majority of their supply is actually manufactured outside of the United States, primarily India and China. What? So what is the, uh, I'm just curious, now you've got me thinking, i got to start Googling, I, not that you're my personal Google guy, but uh, you know, what is the number of, let's take out the drug companies themselves, how many of them are based here in the U.S. percentage-wise versus the rest of the world? You know, if you look at the top you know, 25 drug companies in the world, mm-hmm. about a little over 50% of them are U.S.-based. Yeah. And uh, so it's about a 50-50. And, you know, you'll, you'll recognize the Johnson & Johnson, for example, yeah. or the Gilead, but then we'll have Roche, you know, which owns now Genentech and, of course, which is a European-based, for example. Well, and then a lot of them, if they're not U.S., they are, they are European-based, like uh, Holland and Germany. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, actually, of the brand manufacturers, the two places that you find them are either the United States or in Europe. Very yeah. few live outside of those two general geographies. Is there a real, real reason for that? Why aren't we seeing innovation come from other parts of the world? You know, that's a, that's a really good question. I think part of it is that uh, a lot of the early research that results in many of these drugs coming to market usually is funded by a lot of public organizations. In the United States, for example, it's the National Institutes of Health. 
mm-hmm. uh, the National Cancer Institutes and other folks who, who, who fund a lot of the fundamental r- research. And you find the same thing in Europe where you've got nationalized healthcare and you've got potentially some of the nationalized organizations that are actually funding a lot of the basic research. And you don't find that as much in developing countries. And so it would seem a natural sort of offshoot that you would find many of these companies coming out of regions that have large amounts of public expenditures in the space, which of course raises a really interesting question of, hey, how come everyone is, you know, private companies are profiting so much from a lot of publicly funded research, if you will? Yeah, a lot of it's public and funded, uh, Primo. But wouldn't you wouldn't you also say that the companies themselves are putting a lot into the research? And to, I, I got to imagine, you know, we're talking about a half trillion dollar spend here just in America. But you you add this up around the world, I, it certainly doesn't come up to the kind of money we're talking about in terms of the research. But I mean, typically, I mean, I'm going to take the drug company side, pharmaceutical company side. That's you better you use the word pharmaceutical, I guess, rather than drug company, because it sounds like we're talking about Breaking Bad or something. But, <laughs> but when we talk about pharmaceutical companies, I would imagine their big argument is, hey, this is costly. It costs a lot of money. And yeah, yeah, we might get some money from publicly funded research, but we're putting millions and millions and millions, probably well over 100 million or more into research, why shouldn't we recoup some of that cost? Isn't that one of their arguments? You know, it absolutely is an argument. And it's a fair argument, correct? Because, right, I mean, in everything that we do, we expect there to be a fair return on investment for the efforts that you put in. But this this is also where sort of, if we were to go back to our sort of picture of fairness and ask the question of, well, what does that look like? Well, that becomes another, you know, important question. So, you know, the question that would probably be an appropriate one is, well, how do we know how much is being spent on research, right? And so the best way to do that would be to go back and look at the 10Ks, for example, of the top 10 drug companies. And if you were to look at the 10Ks of the top 10 drug companies, you'd find an interesting phenomenon, which is that they spend much less than we think on research R&D. And on average, they spend about 2x more on sales and marketing than they do on actual R&D. So if we were to use the actual metric of saying dollars spent is our metric, whether it's for R&D or something else, then the reality would be, well, actually, Americans subsidize mostly the sales and marketing expenses for drug companies well, versus okay. research. <laughs> That's an interesting thing. But being a former CMO, I know you've got to spend money to get to the customer base. So, you, you, I mean, they've got to, I mean, especially with some of these, now there's the most obscure kinds of uh, ads I've ever seen in my life, because three-fourths of the ad has to be spending, you're gonna, I'm going to be constipated, I'm going to I'm gonna have a chance of liver failure, heart failure, I could lose, go to blind, and blah, 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 blah. All these problems, I mean, the government puts a lot of restriction on saying all the things that might occur as part of it. So, but I, I mean, I get your point and I'm not, I'm not going to defend them, but I'm saying at the same time, I think they've got to spend two or three times more on the advertising to get the word out because they have a short life in which they can use up the patent or a short life in which they can use the actual drug before it becomes more generic, right? Yeah. You know, interesting enough, again, you know, look in a fair and free market, one could make a strong argument that we don't care. We'll let the market actually regulate that. And we don't even have to have this discussion because we're just going to say, hey, the market regulates that. We don't care. You can buy an iPhone if you want. You can buy a Samsung S8 if you want. Right? The market's going to decide which one. And we, we don't care how much money they make. And we don't care how much money they spend on R&D. The problem in, in pharma is that 
that argument would be true, but then it doesn't answer the question of, well, why are Americans taking it in the shorts for that, right? Because that doesn't explain the fact of why Americans pay, you know, several times more than developed countries like Europe and Canada and everywhere else, yeah. you know? And so that, it still doesn't answer that argument. Well, I want to come back to that question because I, I want to. I want to, we got to find an answer for that. I, why are Americans paying more? Well, probably one because we can't. But we're going to come back to that um, and and kind of get to the crux of that because I think that's at the crux of what you guys are doing as a company and uh, at your company. And so I want to talk a little bit more about. It. So, but I want to take a break first because. I want to talk about a different kind of a drug. This is the kind of drug I like. It's caffeine. It's coffee. And nothing exhausts a person quite like traveling does when I'm jetting across the country for business or pleasure. I always pick up a Dunkin' Espresso, man. And today I had two shots this morning with my coffee, in my coffee. I don't even know what you call that, but I like it. And, uh, you know, and whether you're traveling or staying at home, keep fueled with one of America uh, Dunkin's in America as well. 15,000 Options. America runs on Duncan, and all business with Jeffrey Hazlett runs on Duncan. Man, uh, uh, hey, uh, Primo, do you, are you a coffee drinker? I love coffee, yeah. and I love donuts too. Well, donuts so. are good too. There's not too many Dunkins that you know. The Duncan is now moving into California pretty heavily. I don't know if there's one near where you live or not, but uh, I think there is one in Northern California. Well, at you least better, now, you so. better, you better get out and get some because, man, that's uh, and it's legal. It's good, you know. So, why is it then? Why is it? And what can be done? Maybe that's a better question. Can anything really be done to lower America's what half trillion dollar spend here? You know, I think the answer to that is absolutely. We firmly believe that the answer to that is yes. And the, the reason for that is really simple. We, if we were to have this conversation about air travel 25 years ago, we would have been having the same conversation about how there's only one reservation, electronic ticketing reservation system. You have to go through travel agents, for example. They're the only ones who can actually access the information. You have to have a contract with a air carrier or travel agency if you want to get better prices. And imagine fast forward 25 years and, you know, I have three kids and my three kids don't even know what a travel agent is. Mm -hmm. And so when you step back and look at a lot of the economics of what's happening in the drug industry, I think there's a misconception that the reason why America spend, you know, it costs so much is because Americans are per capita significantly unhealthier or the list goes on. And it turns out, if you were to look at the numbers, right, compared to the OECD countries and everything else, sure, we're slightly higher in certain categories. We're certainly, we're, we're, we're lower in other categories. We're not way off. The only metric that we're way, way off is on the cost per capita. And uh, when we look at that, we realize that that's an economic problem and a business problem. And largely, it's because of how our industry works today, how we have these intermediaries who, for example, control pricing. We saw a lot of that coming out of the public debate, if you remember, with the EpiPen debacle last year. Oh, yeah. And for the first time, everyone in America is like, who are these intermediaries? Who are these people in the middle? Who is Heather Bresch talking about, right? Who they're the ones who are keeping all the money. And at some point, you're asking, well, how come something that costs five bucks to make is costing 600 bucks to the average American. So who are the intermediaries? They're these, uh, you know, they're, the, they're what are called pharmacy benefit managers. And uh, these, these intermediaries are the ones who actually, quote unquote, you know, they control pricing in these markets. And, what, you know, there's, there's a lot of misconception about what the market function they actually bring is. And we often think of them as we get uh, economies of scale because of their purchasing power. 
And it turns out the way that the model works is exactly in reverse. Think about buying shelf space in a grocery store, right? And the model actually isn't that we can aggregate demand and exert pressure on pharma. It's the opposite. Pharma buys quote unquote shelf space. And so as a result, we get steered into using certain drugs rather than having visibility into what is the most cost-effective way for us to get care. That's not what we get because of these intermediaries and how they control can't, the markets. Can't the, well, I was going to say, can't the doctor override that? No, it's a really interesting question because, uh, you know, if you were to ask doctors who they think, you know, ultimately is one of the biggest uh, uh, in, you know, impediments to them providing the best care, they would probably say it's the intermediary industries, right? So in this case, the doctor can prescribe. So, so to be fair, the doctor can prescribe anything they want. So it's not controlled by that. It's controlled by the fact that no one can make a doctor prescribe something, but anyone can say, we're not going to pay for that. And as a result, it doesn't matter what the doctor prescribes if, the, if, if someone isn't going to pay for it, because we largely have a system in which someone else pays the cost of health care. And as a result, until that someone else is going to pay, the consumer is not going to buy it, even if the doctor prescribes it. So, so what's the fix? The, you know, the fix is the same thing that we've seen in other in- industries, which is how do we empower the buyers to do something differently. Because in every industry that's changed, it's never changed because suppliers have decided to change an industry. It's changed because buyers have decided not to buy those products. They, get, they wake up and get smart, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so, so we're going to do again, it differently. Like, kind of like social media has changed the way in which most companies do customer service today. You know, it's always been out there. It's always the dissatisfaction, the way in which we've been vocal has always been there. But now we give them a voice. So you're saying we have to kind of give them a voice or a different way of doing that. Is that right? Absolutely. And I think that often we blame, you know, to be fair to pharma, right? You know, like you were saying, well, what what do you expect pharma is going to do? They sell stuff. And so it's in their best interest to sell stuff. And so they're doing exactly what you would expect a for-profit company to do, which is sell stuff. And in every other part of the industry, it's our job to say, hey, are we going to buy that? And how much are we willing to pay? And that's for us, the sellers, to stand up and say, no, we're not going to pay for that anymore. Well, and, and this becomes self-benefiting for you because, in essence, you're, you're saying, look, we've got an alternative to this because there's the pro- here's the problem. The problem's the problem, all right? Whatever, it, whatever causes it, there's lots of reasons that cause it. But you're saying, hey, we do something different. So you, you're, you're advocating that you guys lower specialty drug costs for self-insured employers. Is that how you're doing it? So yeah, is, because- you, you basically go after the self-insured employers? Yeah, and, and the reason for that's really simple. When you look at, yeah, well, it's because they're the ones who directly pay for healthcare. And when you're mm-hmm. self-insured, whether you're proverbially buying, paying two hundred dollars for a toilet seat, or you're paying two hundred dollars for a two dollar drug, well, it could be a good toilet are, seat. If it's right? a good those toilet are, seat, I'm going to pay two hundred dollars <laughs> for that. All right. Well, this is unfortunately this is the same toilet seat or the same <laughs> drug, right? And yeah. that neither of us is willing to do that. Yeah, that's right? true. Okay. So give me an example. Give me an example of how you do that and, and on the way it works. How do you do it? And then give me an example of that. So we find that there are a couple of, couple of key problems, right? Whenever you're buying something, one is, are you getting it at the best price, right? So that's an obvious one. Yeah. We, like, for example, we can obtain a drug that costs $50,000 a year for that employee now for 40000 right? Which is an obvious saving. So that's not rocket science to say, well, if I can get it for 40 k instead of 50 k 
well, why wouldn't we do that? So that, imagine that's the first leg of what we do. The second leg of what we do is we ask the question that no one seems to be asking, which is the, does the drug actually work? And, and not just the general question of does the drug actually work? Because we know the answer to that is yes. We're asking the specific question of does it work for that patient? Because when you ask that question, you find something very interesting, which is the majority of these expensive drugs out there only work, quote unquote, for a minority of the population, if you were to look at the clinical trials. And so we already know from the data that it's not going to work for even half the population. Well, so let me, there are two questions I ask about that. First of all, who are you to say? That's one. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I'm, I mean, I trust my doctor. Right. As, as most people do. So if my doctor says it's supposed to work. Isn't he have the knowledge? You're saying you have more knowledge than that? So what we're saying is that if you look at how we practice medicine today, very much a lot of it is very much a, hey, I prescribe something and that's it. There's really no monitoring involved. So we've gone back and said, look, a drug is like package technology. Right. It's the, it's the closest part to package technology. Right. For example, it doesn't matter who prescribes the drug. Right which doctor prescribes it to you. If you're on a drug, the drug either works for you or it doesn't. It has nothing to do with who prescribed it. It has nothing to do with how good they are or bad they are as a doctor, right? And so the reason for that is because a drug is one of the few things that was objectively measured as part of a clinical trial to say, hey, it worked in this part of the population and guess what? It didn't work in this part of the population. So as a result, it has objective standards, unlike a lot of other things. So all we're saying is that we're not saying we're smarter than anybody. All we're saying is that, hey, why don't we go back to the original standards that were used to define whether this drug works and make sure it meets that same expectation. But doesn't same- someone do that? Doesn't the FDA, doesn't the FDA do that or, or not? Oh, really good question. I think there's a misconception in the market, and we see that a lot, that the FDA does that. And if you were to step back and ask, well, what does the FDA actually do? It turns out the primary focus of the FDA on an approval is safety. They're trying to make sure it doesn't kill you. But it turns out also that there are no objective standards on whether a drug works or not. There's only a relative measurement of, is it better than a placebo? And that's the metric that the FDA uses. And so, unfortunately, we don't have a mechanism to be able to say any more authoritatively than the FDA's question, which is, is it better than placebo? But as a result, we can ask the question of, well, how much better was it in the trial? And is our patient getting the same response or not? Mm-hmm. And if they're not, that means the drug's not working, right? All right, let me take a quick, another quick break because I want to talk about taxes for a second and then come back to this because this is a really interesting topic and I think all of us are affected in one way, shape, or form uh, because we're all popping a pill. We're all taking a shot. We're all, um, you know, pu- putting something on or in our body at some point and you're going to pay money for it. And then one, does she, are you paying too much is the big question. And if you are or you feel you are, then another way to do it or get around it. And then what's the change? And then how do we learn more about this? And that's what we're doing right here on All Business with Jeffrey Hazel. But I want to talk about taxes for a second. Did you file for an extension uh, for this season? If so, pay attention. Liberty Tax Service isn't just a seasonal business. They offer tax preparation and other tax services year-round. So if you're still working on last year's taxes, visit Liberty Tax, where professionals will ensure you get the most accurate return guaranteed. For the office nearest you, just visit libertytax.com. Okay, so I want to get back to this uh, uh, mode. I'm sorry, pre-mode. 
Supreme mode. I apologize for that. Um, I want to get back to this thing about how how do you lower it? So you're going to self insurers and you're you're saying to them, hey, we can get we can knock off 25 percent. How are you doing it? So you, you said you did they get it right and does the drug work? But are you just like slashing the price by that much? Are you one or now are you now one of the intermediaries that is helping to decide this what? So imagine that what we do is we basically, you know, because, for example, employers aren't in the business of buying drugs and they don't want to be in that business. So imagine that what we do is we're like every other data service provider. We provide data to the employer uh, and it's transparent. Our business model is transparent also in to say that, hey, we're going to acquire these things at the best price for you. And you can see exactly how much you're paying. There's no mystery. There's no uh, there's complete transparency. And on top of that, we're going to look and make sure that the that the that your employees who are on these things are actually getting the benefit of being on the right drugs, right, that actually benefit them. Because one of the other things, going back to the comment you made, was that doctors today often are forced to pick a drug because an intermediary tells them, and often it's not the right drug. And so we actually open those things up and say, hey, we're going to open it up. But we're going to help you manage costs better because now we're going to help you understand, is the drug working? Is it not working? And even simple things like, for example, in a lot of these chronic uh, illnesses, well, you want to figure out how to get a patient well, not a patient on drugs for life. And so our goal also is how do you help the patient and the doctor? And we do this by providing information back to the physician. So we're not, we're not there to tell the physician what to do. We actually provide information back to the doctor on how well the patient is progressing, how they're doing it, so that every party has the same information about how these things are working. Hmm. Because today, we don't have that information that's publicly available today. So are you aggregating the data then across the entire base, I assume? We do. Or, and then against some bigger population, and then you can, you can tell, and I can make a smarter decision either as an employer or an empo- as an employee, or what in this case, it'd be a patient, right? Yeah, so absolutely. So this is this is about, as you can imagine, you're absolutely right. All of these interesting opportunities uh, that we've created in the last 10 or 15 years revolve around data and access to data that we never had before. And so you can imagine that we're doing exactly the same thing. Not only can we help an individual today understand their care better, we can now aggregate that data to understand, well, how well do these drugs actually work? How well, I mean, how much do these things cost? What are the different things that we can compare to where we don't have any of that information today either? You know, it, it, this is two, two things, uh, I guess, I, uh, that's kind of, kind of going through my head. First of all, do you touch in any of the inventory? You, you, you must, to me, you almost sound like you're in the, in the intermediary handling the paperwork and moving the things around, but don't actually just stock all this stuff, right? Yeah, we don't. because, And one of the reasons for that is that when you think about something like pharmacy, pharmacy or most medical uh, related things in the U.S. are regulated industries. And so as a result, you have to have a pharmacist, for example, part of the process for shipping a drug. Now, we could argue whether we need that or not, which is a different question, but that is the regulatory environment today. So as a result, we sort of fit in as the glue that collects all of the information between the different parties, aligning all that information and providing it back to all the parties. So Everybody has the same view, same data, same understanding of how do we get that person to the best outcome as quickly as possible. Now, now, so now I'm trying to ask myself, are you, uh, who are you charging in this process? Are you charging the self-employers? 
the uh, who are you who are you charging? That's a, where's your money coming from? I can see you getting money a couple different ways. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Uh, we have a model, and for transparency reasons, we're paid by, in this case, the buyers, so the self-insured employers. Got it. And so we only represent them. We don't represent any of the other parties. We help the parties, but we're not helping the parties per se to help the parties. We're helping the parties because the buyer wants the best outcome, in this case, the employer for their employees. And that's what we're trying to optimize for. Who's the, the person? Who who's the, I think it's awesome. Uh, so and it, I'm kind of c- cool about this model and getting to think about it a little bit more because we do this with I, I would see I, I, something I did numerous years ago was around um, workers comp and where we'd self-insure workers comp. And then we had good people who were in the middle who helped train people, get them back to work faster. And this was an, another kind of thing. I see this in the, along the same lines. Um, where especially if we're talking about half a trillion dollars in U.S. and employers bear the brunt, quite frankly, of most insurance and employee insurance programs. It's a benefit. I give full benefits to my employees, for instance, and pay for all of our employees' health insurance, which is you know a big, a big, huge bill every month. Um, so, w- does this mean though who? Who handles it inside the company? Who who's your target, and then who is that person? That's kind of like the the is it the manager of the self insured program? You know, it typically ends up depending on size of company being a couple of people. So, in a company, say a mid sized company, that could be your CEO or CFO mm-hmm. because they typically are much more involved hands in on, financial yeah. hands on, right? And as you get into larger companies, it tends to be you know, the the chief human resource officer or CHRO typically ends up being the party that's responsible for these types of things. And then there's usually, if you're a bigger company, like I had hundreds, 100,000 employees, you, you know, you've got benefit managers of some kind. Correct. So, but this really depends, and, and what you're doing really depends on a very educated patient, doesn't it? You know, it, it, in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. Because we assume that most patients out there, you know, when you think about how healthcare works, the primary the party that we actually get advice from is our physician. And so we've taken the same model to say, hey, if we could empower physicians with the right information, rather than trying to be the gatekeepers today, and often they don't have, by the way, remember, they don't have cost information visibility. They don't necessarily have information. They see a patient for five minutes once a year. Right, even if you go to a specialist or 10 minutes, they don't have the ability to assess and manage and monitor a patient throughout that. So our whole focus is on how do we help them in what they're doing? Because we think that is a much more effective way because as you said, as patients, most of us still rely on doctors for advice as much as mm-hmm. we take healthcare into our own hands. So how's, how's the sales process changed over time with the drug industry? You know, it's changed because of a lot of regulation, right? And also lawsuits, because we've seen some major lawsuits around, you know, drug claims that uh, manufacturers make stark law where you can't necessarily, you know, doctors can't be paid. So as a result, some of the things, some of the big changes have been more indirect mechanisms that uh, pharma companies are using. The first one is actually direct to consumer marketing, right? And, And think about, you know, you see these very popular drugs, Some of these very popular drugs that you see, for example, on TV today, 
they cost on average $50,000 or more per year. Mm. And they're used by like, you know, less than half a percent of the population. And so you have to ask yourself, why is, you know, that would be the equivalent of us starting to advertise Bentleys on primetime television, right? And you've got to ask yourself, hey, why are we doing that? Well, because it's indirectly starting to influence physicians. I mean, patients going in and asking their physicians for, I want this drug or that drug. And often physicians don't want to argue with patients or, you know, and, and, and um, physicians, it's easier for them just to say, sure, why don't we try that? Mm-hmm. Than it is to say, hey, there could be a better drug for you out there because, you know, physician satisfaction, patient satisfaction is one of the key scores for them, right? As, well, as and I would think that what you're talking about, you know, once we have the data, once we know if it's working or not working, is going to lead to more what I would call customizable pharmaceuticals or boutique pharmaceuticals that are more more tailored to me my ailment my issue my my treatment than than anything else right absolutely because i think you know you bring up a key point about our message about who we are as a company and our whole argument is that when you know a drug only works for three out of ten people then you also know that it does not work for seven out of ten people and at that point we want to figure out as quickly as possible are you one of the three out of 10 or are you one of the seven out of 10? Because if you're one of the seven out of 10, that drug's not doing anything for you and you're not going to get better. And we want to make sure that whatever therapy that you're on is the one that's going to make sure that you get better. So can sales, can, can they directly sell to the doctors like they used to? Pharmaceutical um, companies? No, no. So a lot of the, there a lot of restrictions have been put in place about economic remuneration. And we're finding, you know, more and more, again, uh, pharma companies typically use other mechanisms now to drive sort of physician behavior. And one of the key ones is that you'll see a lot of key opinion leaders or KOLs, as they're called, who are often leaders within, say, a specialty, who are often out there talking about drugs. You also see that a lot of clinical trials and things are often done by physicians who are premier institutions that everybody looks up to. So as a result, a lot of the benefits have often changed from being direct economic to indirect benefits of, well, if you ever want to get published, who's going to fund your study? Well, if it isn't pharma, there really isn't anyone else to fund it, right? So, the, so they can't, they used to, as I recall, pharmaceutical reps, I used to know a few of them, used to go in on Tuesdays and throw pizza parties in the clinics and so forth. They, so they don't do that anymore at all. Very restrictive because there are limits of $25, you know, on what you can provide, things like that. Mm-hmm. So they've gone to, to using various other mechanisms of, uh, you know, much lower amounts of dollars. Yeah, and, you well, know, there have been yeah. studies that have come up, that come out and shown that even with those few dollars, you can often influence people. You don't oh, really have to spend question. a lot of money on it. Yeah, without question. But at the same time, that, that you know, it also drives up the spend on the direct-to-consumer, which is what they're doing on the TV. That's, I mean, we all know that's where the big money is spent. That's so, right. Yeah, are we likely to see any changes to my relatives driving over the border into Mexico to pick up their drugs in the in the wintertime? You know, not uh, not likely at this point yeah. because I don't know if you saw, but today Kaiser Family Foundation, uh, Kaiser Health News had a report talking about what the scuttlebutt is on what President Trump and the cabinet is thinking about drug pricing. And, you know, their, their sort of initial read on it seems to be much less of a stick against pharma than originally thought. Mm-hmm. So it's very likely that, you know, very little is probably going to change in the short term if that is, in fact, the case. Well, if he puts up the wall, it's probably going to help him, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, listen, I tell you what, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, and thank you for being a part of All Business. Thank you very much. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by Dunkin' Donuts. Hey, at the end of every show, I'd like to talk about the things I learned. I learned a lot today. Uh, you know, I knew this was a big thing. I didn't know how big it was. And, you know, just when I think it's big, there's always something bigger. I think that's the biggest thing I learned today. And the second is that we've got to be a lot more educated. You've got to be a lot more educated. So in your business, I think the one of the key things you can do is to get over-educated, if there's such a word, and that is to know more and more and more about the real reasons behind something. And I thought that was interesting. The other thing I'd learned is this is complicated, man, really complicated. But the best thing you can do is to get into it, dive into it, don't run away from it, but run into the fire. And it will help you get your cost down. And, um, you know, and if you're not self-insured, then maybe it's something you want to look at. Is your business big enough for that? And if not, join an association group or somewhere where it can help you. That could be one of the places that you could save some money. And that's uh, just a way of doing it just by being better educated. So speaking about better educated, help your friends be better educated by getting them to listen to All Business. And this has been Jeffrey Hazlett right here on All Business on C-Suite Radio. Welcome to C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.